Welcome to the Maris Review. I'm Maris Kreisman, and I'm so thrilled to be joined today by Matthew Salises. He's the author of three novels, Disappear, Doppelganger, Disappear, The Hundred Year Flood, and I'm Not Saying, I'm Just Saying, and a forthcoming essay collection. He was adopted from Korea and currently lives in Iowa. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's I, it's so nice to see you and to talk about this book that I saw you talk about earlier in the year, because I think that as someone who I never had the chance to take an MFA program, or I really haven't taken writing courses, which is just strange to me, but all of the tenets and the platitudes from the writing workshops have kind of leaked into my editing and my criticism anyway. Yeah, they're uh, they're powerful. They get around, right? Like, and it, like, show don't tell. They're very promiscuous. <laughs> they're very promiscuous, and I never stop to think about how arbitrary the rules of of the workshop are. Yeah, I think I'm just like um, on some level a contrarian. <laughs> I was talking mm-hmm. to my daughter recently, and she was saying. Like, don't tell me to do things because when you tell me to do them, I don't want to do them anymore. (laughs) Okay, I get that. I totally relate to that. (laughs) Um, And as a writer, too, I just, I think it started just from doing, trying to do always the thing that I was told not to do uh, and realizing, oh, you can actually make this work. Sure. And and it's kind of interesting and and fun to uh, try to do the thing that you're not supposed to do. Yeah. And and you talk about in the book even how um, we're very familiar with the trope. You have to know all of the rules in order to break the rules, but you have to first understand where the rules came from. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an important point. I think we often skip over. <laughs> and and so there's this like, it seems like there's this just like enormous amount of like law <laughs> that you have to learn to be a writer. We just want to be free. And you, some writers just want to be free. <laughs> we just want to be free. And, and, and those rules are always going to be cultural. They're not just like <laughs> handed down from the heavens. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'm a writer and I'm glad I'm not a politician or a lawyer or something, so I don't have to follow uh, governmental rules. I guess I, I really didn't consider before reading your book how arbitrary these rules are and how ingrained they've become in, in so much of what we do when we talk about writing. Tell me about some of the assumptions that go into the ideas of who an audience is in, in, in literature. Yeah, I think it's similar to the ways in which, um, you know, we perform for uh, certain venues or people, um, you know, even the way we dress or speak um, and the ways that we think like a kind of formal way of speaking should be or formal way of dressing should be um, and who then we're actually dressing up for, who then we're, we're talking to. Uh, you know, I think in, in some communities, there's a pretty clear sense of who that is and a named sense of who that is, while in others, it's kind of just assumed that this is the right thing to do. Uh, and it's similar with writing. We When we 
uh, just kind of assume that something should be that way, then of course we're speaking to the dominant culture and um, a kind of the mythical norm, right? Mm-hmm. Your, your book is filled with so many good examples, and some of them are ones that you make up, and some of them are examples from literature, but like just the general idea that in fiction, if you choose whether or not to specify the class or race or gender of a character, that's, that's a firm, that's a choice. It's a choice. It's all a choice. I mean, that's like the great thing about writing, right? It's like, it goes along with, uh, we just want to be free. Um, you know, it's the place where we can make choices freely uh, and nobody, well, you know, supposedly nobody's telling us we have to do something or not. Um, and it's, you know, I think it's often uh, an outlet for people who feel like they don't have the ability to make so many choices in their regular life or that their choices aren't honored or that their choices aren't heard. And we come to the page to be able to have that sense of choice. And yet um, the more uh, the more we hear about writing or the more we're kind of educated in writing, those choices become limited in, in, in strange ways um, without really talking about what those limitations come from and um, who's imposing them. And, and you mentioned a an example in which there, there's a character in a book and their race is never specified. And so to a quote-unquote general audience or an audience of um, MFA students, the default is going to be that they're white. And that is right. just... Yeah, I mean, it's the thing we do all the time, right? Sure, yeah. It's um, one of the amazing things about fiction is that unless it's specifically said it could be anything else (laughs) right fiction doesn't see color it only sees whiteness (laughs) (laughs) and and so that is one of those assumptions that seems to go into the basic ideas of like of who of who we're writing for and the idea that there can be different audiences is <laughs> yeah. like so fundamental. But 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 when you, but when you say it, it's just a good reminder. I think it's a pretty simple change that we can make. Uh, you know, just um, thinking about acknowledging the forces at work all the time on how we understand people and how we kind of make judgments about people at first and understanding that those are the same, you know, cultural judgments that we make in fiction too, when we're presented mm-hmm. with somebody's race, class, gender, ability, et cetera. Um, and, and those things get kind of uh, super reinforced when we are hiding them um, and pretending that we're not doing them the same way that people object to the, we don't see color statement. Yeah. One of the things you talk about in the book is how that even just the idea of like there is humanity is is a universal experience, which is like always at the forefront of people seems uh, of the arguments of people who are very into. uh, Well, you mentioned the author who led the um, talk about how cultural appropriation isn't bad while she was wearing the sombrero, yes. which like that is, that's a real choice. 
It is. It's definitely a choice. It's a choice only some people uh, would feel free to make, for sure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I have to believe that thinking about an audience as multifaceted and not just one cohort or group of buyers, whatever you're going to think of them as, has to be freeing for writers, too. Yeah, I think it is for sure. I mean, it is. I can see it with my students too. It's, it's, uh, it seems. I don't know. For some reason, it seems at first like they feel like it's constricting, but then as they realize, you know, that that actually allows them to do things that aren't so kind of generalized and, um, you know, conforming to standards that they haven't been told are standards that they're able to then kind of make choices more consciously, right? And the um, the whole thing about the universality, I yeah, it's I think you know going through school too, right? Like that's it was always like how a book was held up as good was it? Yeah. Look how universal it is. Um, I always felt like oh, this it doesn't seem like my experience at all. Maybe like I'm the weird one. Like I must be the strange person who's not universal or something. Um, and it took a long time, I think, to realize even personally that that was just like a kind of bullshit thing and. Um, maybe universalism is just another way of, uh, of kind of propping up the norms. And, and related is relatability. Yeah. Um, relatability. Like, like related is relatability. See, that's, that's my beautiful prose. <laughs> um, but the idea like that, that you have to somehow identify with a character in order to find them worthy or find them interesting is is such a strange way to look at things. It is. I was just talking to a friend about this and she was saying her students were really stuck on this issue and were saying like, you know, like this death, this person's death doesn't resonate with me because I don't find them relatable. I was saying, oh my gosh, this seems like a really uh, questionable moral choice, right? To think that somebody's death doesn't matter unless you can relate to them in some way. Um, it just... Yeah, I think we have to make these, you know, decisions about what we stand for in life um, and think about why someone's death would matter more if we just feel like they represent our experience. And then um, what we're saying about whose deaths matter more, right? Who's, whose lives and stories matter more? And, and do we really want to stand for that? I, I mean, I think if you ask that question of people, most people say, oh, no, in the, it's just kind of like wake-up call. Mm -hmm. yeah, you definitely have to be shown though um and i think it's such a, a funny part of the idea that if you subscribe to the idea that reading inspires empathy reading about people different from you inspires empathy but then the idea that you have to then also somehow be able to relate to them is is just like another hurdle in seeing the humanity in, in other people who are not like you. Yeah, I wrote an essay about this um, when the Doppelganger novel came out about uh, how relatability and empathy are actually quite uh, connected in that um, there's this great book called Against Empathy uh, by philosopher Paul Bloom, and he talks about, right, like how empathy is really uh, a way of entering into similarities, right? We, we relate to somebody and that's why we empathize with them. Um, and then of course that means we don't empathize with people we don't relate to. Um, and so maybe empathy isn't that great of a thing. Uh, and we could be looking for something that helps us connect with the other, connect 
connect with um, the kind of unknowability of another person, the difference of another person. That seems much more uh, useful for our lives, yeah. maybe, and also kind of <laughs> compassionate, maybe. Compassionate. And so in the book, you, I feel like I <laughs> have been, well, I've gotten like a third-hand education in writing. <laughs> Um, and so it, it was very thrilling for me that in your role as both a, a writer and as a former MFA student and a current teacher, you could go back and define and redefine so many of the terms we use in, in craft. And so I'm wondering if we could talk about a couple of them. Sure. Great. Um, how, let's talk about tone. Okay. Um, and the idea that emotions are cultural, much as craft is cultural. I guess it, it, it was interesting for me to consider how tone is separate from emotion. But emotion, of course, is a cultural product. Yeah. So we have these like assumptions about emotion that everybody feels the same emotion and um, that emotions kind of mean that we act the same way as somebody from a totally different culture um, when we feel angry or something. But the both the emotions on a certain level, some seem to be more universal, quote unquote, than others. Uh, some seem to be extremely cultural, but also the kind of reactions we have when we feel a certain emotion um, those things seem very cultural, uh, you know, and they're about kind of what is acceptable behavior when you're feeling a certain way, right? How do you express that emotion in a way that other people understand what it is? Um, you know, how is it approached and how is it understood and listened to? And those things, of course, are very cultural. Um, one of the, my favorite examples is the example in the book about um, uh, what I can remember now it's called. It's like being a wild hog or something. And it's this... Uh, emotion in New Guinea where um, yeah. men mostly uh, <laughs> go on a kind of rampage and then run off into the woods and uh, come back like a day later and have forgotten everything that happened. Um, and, you know, we don't know whether this is 100% sincere or not, but it's definitely an accepted emotion and a kind of named emotion and an emotion that people understand to be a normal thing in this society. Um, and so that's a pretty... Uh, different example from some some of the kind of emotions we probably feel more familiar with here in this country, but um, there are emotions like that all over the world. Right. And yes, not everyone's mood board just has uh, happy, sad. <laughs> <laughs> no, some have being a wild hog. I also like the idea of plot as acceptance or rejection of consequences. I mean, so... Even before we get into um, the idea of craft that was developed in the MFA, I mean, you talk a lot of smack about Aristotle, which I appreciate. <laughs> <laughs> it's very. Because I uh... think we, we really, I mean, this is even like in grade school. Yes, it Aristotle. is. Um, and, and his idea of, of what plot should do and how plot should work. And it's not the only way. No, it's not the only way. It's funny too because right, like kids often gravitate early on to fairy tales, right, and and they don't often follow the Aristotelian model. You know, right. they kind of 
are things dropped down on the characters and they're supposed to kind of uh, represent certain fears or certain rules that we should follow in society. And, and those things, you know, are totally accepted and fun and, and kids kind of naturally tell those kinds of stories too um, and, and listen to those stories and, and repeat those stories. And yet then they get into grade school. You're right. Like I've seen the worksheets my daughter gets and they're like, put the, you know, the character's desire in here, put the conflict in here. And they're like boxes, like literal boxes mm -hmm. she's got to fill in. Um, and I, I, you know, there are things that are helpful about that for sure. Thinking about like, these are expectations that people will have in America, mm -hmm. you know? So when you go off from school and you are telling stories, this will probably be a useful way of telling a story, you know, impactful way of telling a story. But of course there are so many other ways of telling a story and, um, you know, the, the ways that a certain kind of story is tied so closely to education and societal norms, then kind of, you know, qualifies it as a certain kind of like a right way of doing things or normal way of doing things. It makes the other things seem abnormal or weird or, uh, or wrong, even in the, in the kind of worst case scenario. And then, and so then we get to the idea of conflict and again, the idea of your classic hero is limited. It's, it's limited the, the, the impact that the world and the culture can have on that character. Yeah. The thing about like the, the fatal flaw, that was what I learned a lot as, yeah. as good storytelling, even in like literature classes, right? Not even in creative writing classes, just this is how good literature works. The mm -hmm. character, you know, the character's flaw, character flaw causes all of these problems for him. And then he then, right, through personal growth is able to solve all of the problems mm -hmm. he created. And even then I was thinking, well, like, what about all these people who'd like die in the back, in the background yeah. of these stories, right? Because of this guy's like fatal flaw, um, you know, for them, it's, it's not their fatal <laughs> flaw that's causing all these problems. You know, it's just kind of living in a world where some people's fatal flaws have vast and uh, deep consequences and other people's fatal flaws are like that they live in the world. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's, it's a, it goes back to, to the, to the idea of consequence and for me a big thing is I, I find myself saying to my students probably most the thing I say most often is why why do you believe so much in free will you know just like what just I want to know why um because it's usually has nothing to do with kind of reasoning it out or thinking about what actually has an effect on their lives it's just kind of a thing that's part of this project of individualism that we are especially attached to in America. Um, and I don't think it actually reflects many people, possibly most people's experience, uh, in that the things that happen to us very rarely, well, okay, for me, very rarely seem to be about the decisions I make. They're more about decisions other people make or, you know, rules, laws, uh, you know, neighborhoods that have good schools. <laughs> like, why yeah. do I live in this neighborhood? Right. Uh, who are my neighbors? You know, who are the people I'm friends with and rely on? It's geography and like class and race and gender and all these other things that are um, really having the effect. I mean, if we think about too all the studies on like why do kids do better or worse at school, it's all about like the education they get at home, the educational background of their parents, you know, all these things that happen before they're like, before they even get into school in the first right. place. Um, and that seems 
like not really a child's choice. And, <laughs> you know, in, in many of these cases, I think if we're going to tell stories about this world and, and, and if we be really believe like stories matter, right. And stories can help us live better lives, uh, which I, I believe in strongly. And, you know, I, I wouldn't want to write. I don't know if I would write if I didn't believe that. Um, then we should be making, you know, better decisions about how to represent those worlds and those lives and um, whose lives and worlds and whose experiences uh, we write about. Because it's not going to help me or didn't help me to think I can maybe I'll just like escape my bullies by walking through a closet into a world where I'm king, you know. <laughs> Though I longed for that a lot as a kid, sure. and I thought, well, like, you know, I was like always checking the walls in the closets, trying to figure out where I could get through <laughs> to this other better place, and it never really happened, right? And I had to kind of um, instead face the situation that I was in, which was, you know, not of my choosing. And And then you can take that idea and say, okay, if very few of us have this free will that is so um, expounded upon in... American literature, um, then perhaps the cone of silence, as you call it, in in writing workshops, <laughs> is not as diplomatic as as we might like to think it is. <laughs> no, the cone of silence. I mean, I, I like even putting it that way, just because it's it's it really drives home. Yeah. The idea of what it is, right? It, I always picture that, like your poor pet. And their cone, can't like trying to and... right. I know, and they just can't because they're not allowed to, and it's for their own good. <laughs> um, and they've just got to eat their medicine and take it. Uh, and it's 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 not that great when you're not sick. I mean, I think that's the thing. We just kind of assume that the authors are sick uh, and need outside help, need our help, um, because we know how to do things better and we know how to fix them. And like. You mentioned that, yeah, there are some people who will benefit from that. Um, they tend to be the people who have to learn how to listen a little bit better. <laughs> right. And um, for the rest of us, I mean, that always sounded, talk about like just the ideas about the writing workshop that sound scary to me. That always sounded incredibly terrifying. Like, what do I do if I have shared this work that I am really that is like a deep piece of me and it's read the wrong way and I have to stand there like it's a nightmare and I don't have the ability to actually say anything I know for silence I, I think it does you know there is a lot of fear around the workshop even for people who you know invest in it and really even for people who kind of believe in its ability to help them grow there's there's a lot of fear around it um, you know, I remember when I, I was in my MFA, our goal really was to like get into workshop and have almost nothing said about it at all, right? Like <clears throat> the ideal workshop was where nobody could say anything about the work because it was so perfect um, that it didn't need any fixing. Which is you, like, talk about a, a non-realistic world. Like, yeah. and, but I understand, like I, I, it took you reminding us that the purpose of the workshop is not to discourage writers <laughs> um, and that and that everyone should leave a workshop having some idea of how they want to proceed and not just quit. <laughs> yeah. 
when I was in my MFA, one of my professors said that um, another professor in the MFA uh, had told her that her teaching strategy was to make somebody cry on the first day. Oh. <laughs> I thought, oh my gosh, this is even like a teaching strategy. That seems like a, just like a suffering strategy. Like a, I don't understand that as a strategy at all. Um, but also meant that I never took that professor. Um, you know, and maybe I could have learned other things from them if they hadn't thought of that as a way to, I don't know, gain students' trust or something. Pleasant, helpful, especially because the way you write about workshops and you are someone who still teaches them and still believes in them, is that it is a collective experience that's meant to benefit everyone, (laughs) that everyone's supposed to learn from it and not, not be discouraged. Yeah, I think of like those like brainstorming sessions, right? How how productive mm-hmm. they can be when everybody's kind of in it together and like feeding off of each other's energy and uh, imagination and, you know, even like a writer's room or, or what I imagine a writer's room to be, though it seems like possibly it's a lot more toxic than that. Um, you know, my ideal in my head writer's room seems like it would be really fun to uh, kind of talk about stories all the time with people who also love stories and um, talk about the possibilities. I mean, I think the possibilities is really the best part about workshopping. It's something that I really like about workshopping. And I, I think it's something that people really like about, you know, stepping out of their kind of writer's caves and uh, talking to other writers that, um, there are things that spark ideas and ways that we can help each other, not by kind of like telling each other what to do, but just kind of opening up the possibilities and opportunities that we have in the writing. And I think a good workshop can do that um, as long as it's not trying to, you know, fix the thing on the page and turn it into something uh, that is like a kind of problem solving exercise. And and I like that in the book you talk about telling students like you're not supposed to take all of the use all of the criticism and like your work is your work and you're empowered to decide what from the group you can accept or reject but it's 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 meant to help (laughs) yeah it takes a little bit of work i think to kind of counteract the power of the workshop and like the the persuasiveness of the workshop, right? Like, because you assume, and rightly, right, that these other folks who are your friends often, or at least acquaintances who are, uh, who really care about writing and, you know, have your best interests at heart, uh, usually, hopefully, um, are giving you good advice. But of course, it's always somebody else's advice, and it's not you doing the imaginative work for yourself. And so, like, to try to take advice from all these different people, you know, the writing by committee thing, maybe that works for TV, but <laughs> I haven't found that it works so well for, uh, you know, a novel, for example, yeah. unless you're explicitly doing that. So I'm, I'm talking to you a few months after the book came out. Tell me about some of the feedback you've gotten. How, like, are, are you seeing any changes within MFA programs or how craft is being taught? Yeah, I think it's been, it's, I mean, for me, it's been really amazing and um, really supportive. And, uh, you know, it's the book is being taught in a lot of places. And 
I think it's helping. Um, you know, of course, there's a certain selective nature to it where, uh, you know, self-selecting where professors who are teaching it already kind of have thought about these ideas, right? And, um, are, and this is helping you know, move further along that line and people who kind of reject the ideas outright, you know, probably aren't teaching this in their classrooms. Right. Um, you know, people who needed the most maybe uh, hardly ever kind of reach for the things um, that will help them. But the the best responses for me have been um, writers who have been saying this has helped kind of help me be free, help me write the thing that I wanted to write that I thought maybe I shouldn't write this because it doesn't seem like the right thing to do. Um, and I could see how the book could do that. I actually honestly didn't think of it doing that. Uh, I thought of it more as kind of like pulling back the curtain on the things that we are told to do. Um, and I've been really gratified to hear that it has been helping people uh, follow their uh, own kind of uh, intentions. I love that. And, and, and for me as a reader, it's given me a new set of questions to consider. Yeah, the response from critics has been really interesting too, I think. Just, um, you know, I didn't really have them in mind, though I know my editor was saying, well, like people who read or just read books, they're going to like this. I'm thinking, yeah, sure, sure. I mean, like they'll like it. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's true. Like it has been, uh, it seems like it's been helpful for people who review books too to think about um, like why they might have certain reactions to books and whether or not that's something that they're bringing into the reading experience, whether they're the right audience for the book or not, and, and what that means about reviewing. I mean, those are those are great questions and important questions to ask. Um, and, you know, it just shows, like, you have an audience and an ideal audience, but, of course, the book can reach all kinds of people. Right, or one hopes. <laughs> <laughs> Before we go, please... Um recommend some books for us sure i'd be happy to i love recommending books so i know um uh cpam Singh's book has just come out in paperback that's it's um oh my gosh what it's i can picture the cover very these hills are gold is that i think it's called something like gold that. these hills are gold how much of these hills is gold ah uh, how much of these hills are gold so that's a book i would recommend picking up it's really beautiful sentences really um Really, also another book with really amazing sentences that kind of um, is a is a really wonderful exercise in, in language and like really paying attention to language as a possible possible way of you know like following a story uh, is Bestiary by Kei Ming Chang. Um, I'm still kind of making my way very slowly for through the uh, the Lying Life of Adults by Elena Ferrante, which. Um, you know, I just love Fronte, and uh, I think I've exhausted the rest of her over on in English, and so I don't really want to let go of this one. And it's sure. um, <laughs> so I've been listening to it very slowly. Marissa Tomei does the audiobook, yes. and it's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, so there's that book too. I think that's a great book. Um, I've been reading. I read uh, Appropriate by Paisley Rectal recently, and. Um, I would I would recommend that to anybody kind of wrestling with uh, issue issues of uh, cultural appropriation. And then, um, of course, in the back of of this book, there's you have a a really good and intense further bibliography. I wonder if you'd want to talk about one or two of those books for us. Sure. Um, let me just pull it up here. Yes, <laughs> yeah. 
because you know like as soon as i start thinking about it then everything just slips right out of my mind um yeah so i did a lot of research for the book and i tried to include things in the bibliography that were either things i referenced directly or things that i found helpful um but there were you know maybe five times this many books that i did read i just found many of them not that helpful not especially helpful. other craft books sure. yeah so i didn't want to uh put them in there i wanted this hopefully to be a resource that people could go to um you know taking this book and then trying to find out where else to go next uh some of the things i got a lot out of were um thomas king's um let me see where it is here the Truth About Stories, I think that's what it's called. The Truth About Stories, a native narrative. Uh, and he kind of thinks about uh, a native aesthetic and a way of telling stories that um, isn't about newness, but about uh, the shared way in which stories get circulated and retold and, um, you know, taking kind of ownership out of it. Uh, the book um, Toward the Decolonization of African Literature, that also... I thought when I was reading that, wow, like this, I would have thought I've already kind of seen this in classrooms. It just seems like a really um, useful book for thinking about how to uh, break down the things that we've been learned, you know, things that we've learned from a, a kind of um, imperialist uh, storytelling mission and um reconnect to ways that people have been telling stories um, and cultures that, you know, have been colonized. I, you uh, know, like no, I recommending the that. books is the best, is the best. Well, <laughs> as you, as you know, of course. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has I so admire everything you do for the book world. It's, it's really amazing. And, and I mean, everyone craft in the real world. Let's say it again. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you, Maris. Thank you for listening to the Maris Review. And check the show notes for the books we discussed on here today. And please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.